Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. This is the OIS Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I am Tom Salemi, and happy to have you here. We are just a couple of weeks removed from the OIS at ASRS event. It's happening on August 10th in Boston. You'll uh, need to go to OIS.net to uh, check out the agenda and, of course, to register. So uh, feel free to do so now. It's a, it's a great event. We've got uh, some interesting additions to the lineup in, in addition to the, uh, the great uh, company presentations we'll have in the morning and the clinical discussions in the afternoon. We'll have a, a, a fascinating discussion, I hope, about uh, seed stage financing. So if you're uh, uh, an entrepreneur looking to raise capital, it would be a great place for you to find out where you can find it. And, of course, some of the people who have the capital will be there as well. So it would be a good place for you to be on that day. Go to OIS.net, check out the agenda, and, of course, register to attend the August 10th event. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk to a couple of physicians. Uh, I was able to speak with Elizabeth Yu of Virginia Eye Consultants and Richard Lewis of Sacramento Eye Consultants. And in my conversations with them, I wanted to sort of address the uh, the middle space. And between the innovation we talk about on the podcast and the care of patients, uh, obviously that's where the doctors reside. And, uh, and I want to understand how this influx of new technology is impacting these physicians. And uh, it was great. They had great conversations with both. And uh, we'll run one after the other. We'll start with Elizabeth Yu from Virginia Eye Consultants. I talked with her a bit about the uh, the challenges uh, of treating uh, presbyopia and of having presbyopia, uh, about how new technology is uh, really affecting her her practice, what she might be doing differently with with marketing and other things, but also uh, what happens, what does she see rather happening in the next five to ten years. So, let's start this podcast with my interview with Elizabeth Yu of Virginia Eye Consultants. Well, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah. You hosted our uh, our presbyopia breakout session this morning. Uh, give us a quick rundown on the session itself, but also the presbyopia space. I mean, it's really it's become a, 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 a fascinating and a growing field. And as for someone who is in desperately need of new technologies to correct their vision. I'm anxiously awaiting some uh, some new options. Sure. Yeah, um, presbyopia as a space. I mean, we've been very fortunate in terms of the lens-based approaches and the different options that have become available over the last decade. And so we wanted to take this breakout breakfast session and really looking at, you know, the newer technologies from the corneal perspective mm-hmm. because we really didn't have so much of that before. It was either just kind of a blended vision or creating a corneal multifocality, and that's somewhat limited, sure. you know. So we were so fortunate. Yari Mitchell, who's the Vice President of both uh, Medical Affairs as well as Business Strategy, and then Sarah Cannon, who's the Vice President of Global Marketing, and then Dr. Bill Wiley, who has just a phenomenal practice in this space as well as just a great practice in general, to have them kind of give us a real good overview and get into a nitty a gritty discussion on uh, the technologies that are being offered. It's really interesting. So presbyopia in general, I mean, I was surprised to find out that um, based on market scope data, as of 2013, there are over 110 million Americans that are presbyopic. And by 2020, from a global perspective, it is going to, you know, boom to almost 2.1 billion worldwide that are within the presbyopic space, right, or presbyopic age group. When you look at that and you think about there's 
so many of these people who uh, would love to have a surgical option to help them um, because this is really what a very ubiquitous refractive error that everyone is going to suffer from. Mm -hmm. And that prime group seems to be that 45 to 55, 57 in my own practice, you know, 40 to 45, it's kind of tough to talk to them about adding a presbyopic inlay because they're just starting to notice that maybe here they can't see. We're we're in firm denial too. It's not going to happen to me. (laughs) Right, right. Just don't even talk about it. Right. And the the, the patient um, that's going to really notice it is the one who's like, I just bought plus ones and now they don't work. And Mm -hmm. where are they? Because you don't need them all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's a sweet spot there. But what's really important to note is that as a group, if you are going to grow a presbyopic practice in general, I mean, these patients need to be uh, treated a little bit differently. Um, The evaluations, um, it's almost like an ultra luxury line in your practice. There is no tolerance for the above 40 business uh, person who's coming in. They do not want to wait. They need to be treated with kid gloves. Mm -hmm. And then certainly they're already in that group where they're going to experience more dry eye disease, which can affect outcomes. So, you know, there's a lot of different considerations, but it's exciting to know that there are uh, more options. Are they coming to you informed? So, I mean, patients now before they see their doctor, they're on mm-hmm. Google and they're, and they're finding out, they're di- diagnosing themselves before they even get there. Yeah. Are people coming to you and asking you directly about these new technologies that are just getting FDA approval? Some yes and some no. I mean, part of it is we have been also doing a marketing push mm-hmm. because we want to get those patients in, you know, the toughest group, I think, is the presbyopic emetrope. Hmm. So they see great in the distance, both eyes. I mean, generally speaking, um, they're anywhere from like maybe a plus 50 to a minus a quarter. Not enough so that they are willing yet in the tender age of early 40s to want to give up any of that distance vision because they don't understand what the compromise is. You may give up a line or two of distance to gain a pound of near mm-hmm. when their near is already not that bad yet, you know. But those patients who are either myopic or plus two and you are be able to offer them both refractive surgery to give them freedom from spectacles plus give them also the ability to have uh, the reading vision, I think that is a real sweet spot. And you know, between the camera, I mean, I've just learned today that over 5,500 have been implanted in the U.S. so far. Wow. It was the earlier approved. And then with the raindrop to date, I mean, it's only been approved, um, what, for less than a year at this point, mm-hmm. And 1,200 to date have been implanted domestically. So the market penetrance, it's not a – I thought it wouldn't – be quite as um, much of a pickup, but there are over 100 practices that are already implanting the um, the raindrop and more so with the camera. So, I mean, those who have more of a LASIK type of practice where the foundation is set up, there's a lot of cross-pollination that can occur. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you for myself, just because we are now focusing and trying to get um, our inlay practice to take off, it actually has grown every segment of my practice. Nice. I've done more lens exchanges for my patients. I've done more monovision for my patients. And just even distance LASIK, I, I mean, more and more patients are just coming in because maybe from that focused marketing that we're doing. But I just think that it really resonates with that 45 to 55 group. So they come for the presbyopia and they stay for the for the next thing. The right. LASIK. Yeah. And I'm a nice person. Well, of so. course. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's clear. So uh, and you got into So how is it impacting uh, your, your practice? You're, you're, you're making structural changes. You're adding different elements to it. Um, are you also – how is it changing your interaction with, with the patient? Are you coming armed with more information? Are you setting aside more time 
to talk to them about all the options they have and may have in a, in a couple of years. How has it changed your interaction with the patient? Yeah, that's interesting. It has evolved a little bit. You know, our, my cataract evaluation days are like on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. And for those days, I have 15 to 20 minutes per cataract evaluation just so that I can stay in the zone because it's hard to go back and forth from significant pathology with my heavy pathology cornea practice to talking refractive and cataract. So similarly, LASIK, we, you know, we gave 10, 15 minutes spots, but now doing a, a, a wider focus on the presbyopic group. So for myself, I actually, I'm, I only do LASIK on 40 and older. Hmm. And I've kind of segmented my practice to really harness and kind of champion that part. And then we'll open it up to other surgeons, but we want to make the launch quite successful. So I want to be able to really garner that experience. And then our other refractive surgeons will take it on. But just like you said, a lot of them are coming informed um, and, and they know about the side effects. Um, they also know about potential complications. Um, and it's, you know, especially because I don't have much experience with it yet, mm-hmm. to mitigate the expectations with a new technology um, and the potential explantation rate, which is quite low at 3%, but still to take someone who has no problems with their eyes, quote unquote, minus the presbyopia, and then, you know, giving them this talk, sometimes, you know, it's not as many people are, are picking it up. Like I said, those who are have, do have a refractive error and want to do something altogether, those are the patients who have been uh, more excited about the technologies. And, you know, there's a few things we have to do properly. I think the AccuTarget has been great. I'm not a consultant or anything. It's just a phenomenal device. The, the OSI, which actually simulates the quality of the image mm-hmm. that through the patient's non-dominant eye, which is what we're taking it off of, um, it gives me a really good sense of if this patient should be getting a cornea technology at all, or if that OSI, if that scatter index looks like they're not a great candidate because the quality of the image is poor, then I know that refractive lens exchange is a better option for them. And I've been really surprised at how accurate it is. So I'll see a really poor OSI before I walk into the room for a patient mm-hmm. from the AccuTarget, and I look in, and they have two central vacuoles. Two little vacuoles can, of the, uh, uh, in the lens. You think, you know, they still have 20-20 vision. It's not that bad, but it really does diminish the contrast sensitivity and quality of what the light rays are doing when they go into the eye and how they're being refracted and diffracted once it goes into that aberrated optical system, hmm. you know, with the lens changes. So um, I think that diagnostic component is really important. I also think letting everyone know you're going to have dry eye and your sweet spot of when you're going to really experience uh, the most amount of near, it's not going to be right away necessarily. It's going to take a few months and I'm going to in fact start you on dry eye therapy even before we go into surgery simply because you're going to be dry and that's going to lead to visual fluctuations. And then I think we're very fortunate to know that mitomycin C can help mitigate the potential haze that happens in the cornea. So, again, uh, reducing any potential complications and optimizing outcomes post-op. Is bringing these sort of technologies into your practice, is it, is it expensive? Is it becoming more too expensive? To, well, not to do, but is it, is it a challenge to, to finance these sort of acquisitions or additions? Yes, yeah. and yes. Yeah. It, it, it's a challenge for anybody, yeah. certainly. Um, now it's nowhere in the same range of uh, what you know, LASIK lasers sure. and the eczema plus the femto cost. But it is still a capital investment, um, certainly. Uh, I, I do think that if you are already a refractively-minded practice and you have some of that already set in place, then it's not too much of a capital investment or not too much sticker shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my true personal feelings on it, though, are because the camera inlay is a great EDOF pinhole kind of optic that is best served in patients who are a little bit myopic uh, versus the, um, the raindrop is for the slight hyperobe upwards of plus one. So there are different patients. So if you're going to incorporate inlays, you kind of need to consider incorporating both in order to really be able to offer the true offerings because they both have uh, their benefits. Sure. Interesting. Final question. You're one of the young leaders in ophthalmology. We're talking yeah. about all this, this flood of new technologies come in, new products. What do you see happening in the next five to 10 years? It must be a very exciting time to be part of this specialty. Oh, it really is. Yeah. I, think, I think the refractive space period, whether it's lens or corneal, um, my prediction is, and I could be totally wrong, I still don't think we're going to have a perfect accommodative lens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the holy grail, which is to really truly correct the loss of accommodation from a lens-based approach um, that is going to be uh, ergonomically uh, easy um, and familiar for surgeons to do, that's still going to take a bit. And we've just seen that from past experience thus far, how long it's taken technologies to actually get approved. Uh, I, I think we will in two decades. I'm not sure if the next decade is going to come up with that perfect answer. But it is exciting that there's things like pyloxy and pharmacologic approaches, as well as scleral approaches, that um, there are going to be better options that we can use to help serve our patients, especially in that group before they need lens-based surgery. But truly, we have great lens-based options, and it's getting better. It's a great time to be doing this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thanks for joining us today. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Elizabeth. You appreciate having you on the podcast. Just had a chance to listen to my intro. My voice does sound a little scratchy. I apologize for that. I'm battling a bit of a a sore throat. Uh, So next, we're going to talk to Rick Lewis. Rick is uh, no stranger to the podcast. He's been on before. Both he and Elizabeth are contributors to OIS, so great to have them transfer their, their skills and knowledge from the stage to the podcast speaker. And I talked to Rick about uh, new MIGS treatments, how they have impacted his life as a glaucoma specialist. What are the challenges facing new technology, including reimbursement? And uh, we talked a bit about patients, too, how, how the adoption of new technology has really helped him draw from a, 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 f- a wider field, a wider geographic area for new patients. And he has an interesting story about a woman from Oregon. So... I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rick Lewis of Sacramento Eye Consultants. Rick, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We just wanted, I wanted to continue to follow up. I'm trying to talk to some clinicians at the meeting just about, we, we talk so much about all these grand technologies that are becoming available and are being available to treat diseases. In between that process is the physician who has to communicate with the patient who has to uh, obviously prescribe the medicine, perform the procedure. And one area that you've got a you acute focus on is glaucoma and, and MIGS, and that's been a space that we've talked about in a podcast that has, that has grown exponentially, and you have so many more opportunities and options than you did before. Where are we, let's back up with, where are we with, um, with treatments for glaucoma, for glaucoma? You've got a, 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 a quite an a, a array of options now that you didn't have before. Um, what is your practice like in terms of the options you're able to give to, to patients? Well, you know, I, I think that glaucoma has evolved uh, dramatically. You know, if you, if you think about it, we spent a long time 
um, with the same medications, and there was some innovation on the diagnostic side, very little innovation on the either the pharma side or the surgical device side. However, uh, really the last few years, uh, particularly the last, last two years, for example, it's been a, a dramatic change on the device side. Mm-hmm. So being able to offer patients a, a safer and uh, effective way of controlling their pressure surgically has really changed our approach to disease. We're, we used to put off treating it surgically. We had a lot of complications with standard classical trabeculectomy. Uh, you know, all the MIGS options have changed that. Much Patients are more open to it, and doctors are more open to it. And I think that's why you're seeing the great success of Glaucos and, and the other companies that are developing uh, the MIGS products. What has MIGS specifically meant for your practice in terms of patients you're able to treat now, business you're able to, to generate? Yeah. You know, patients uh, will specifically seek me out now because they, they, they know that we've been involved. Uh, we've been involved with MIGS all the companies from the very beginning, and it's been a, a long battle, in some cases over 10 years, uh, getting past the uh, discovery phase and you know, all the way through the regulatory approval. Um, and so, you know, patients like that. I, I had a patient, uh, I have my practice in Northern California, I had a patient come down from Oregon just a week ago. Uh, locally, the, 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 she was told that she needed a trabeculectomy. When she went home to read about it, um, she really didn't like all the side effects and sought me out to have um, a procedure done, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, she was so thrilled. In fact, we did the surgery on this last Monday. Um, she gave me a huge hug the next day and was just thrilled by the whole the whole process. Had good, good pressure control and none of those side effects that we worry about with trabeculectomy. So it's a wonderful thing. And how about on the on the financial side of things? Is, is how how have things played out with reimbursement with MIGs? And, and yeah, well, and that's one of the big challenges. Uh, you know, it's it's been a challenge, for, of course, to get regulatory approval. Sure, uh, that took a long time for Glaucos, but the reimbursement side has been even tougher. And in my dream, I hope that in the future, that someday that they'll will be able to consolidate uh, FDA approval with reimbursement so that both the insurance companies and Medicare and all the, the payers will uh, uh, go, uh, go along with what happens by the FDA. The fact now is that something gets approved, but we don't see a reimbursement piece in place for about a year. Sure. And it, it creates this pent-up demand where patients want it and they, they don't have coverage for it. So uh, I have spoken to the FDA about this, and, and, uh, and they're, they're, they, they recognize that we're not doing a service to the American public when we get approval, but we really can't use it because it's not a, not a covered benefit. So I would hope that uh, both the FDA and industry change the design of these to begin to, to show the value uh, on a reimbursement side as well as approval. So where do we go from, from here with MIGS? You were, you were going to be leading a discussion this morning sort of about the incorporation of, of MIGS with drug delivery with other functions. How is that movement progressing, and, and does that maybe provide a solution to the reimbursement problem if there's a drug administered with the, with the 
the MIGS device, perhaps. Yeah. Well, you know, underlying the whole issue here is uh, a problem with any chronic disease, which is adherence and compliance with sure. medications. Uh, and so there's been a big push over the past five to 10 years by a number of companies to develop drug delivery systems. Allergan has one, Ocular Therapeutics, Mady Therapeutics, uh, Punctal Plugs. There's a whole slew of different drug delivery systems in place. Um, so th these delivery systems will deliver drug. Uh, but I think as you step back and look at what could happen and probably will happen in the next five or ten years will be the merger of these MIGS devices that are surgically treating a specific part of the eye and a glaucoma uh, drug that perhaps treat a different part of the eye. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it provides neuroprotection or neuroregeneration. Um, so now we've got a, a d directed treatment at the outflow system and a treatment on the posterior segment. And that, of course, is a bit of a pipe dream at the moment. Uh, but the introduction of all these MIGS devices uh, has opened the opportunity up, and hopefully we have the wherewithal to go after it. That's great. And so, I mean, as someone who's treated glaucoma for a very long time, I mean, this is a heyday for you, I imagine. It's been an exciting time. I've been in the, in the you know, in glaucoma for 30 years, and I've, uh, we've struggled for so many with, uh, with nothing new, and now we have a lot of interesting options. And we still have a long way to go. We're, we still, you know, are lowering pressure when we need to protect the nerve. So I'm hoping uh, in, that still in my career that we'll be able to treat both pressure and optic nerve at the same time. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And that is a wrap. Thank you, Elizabeth, you and Rick Lewis for joining us on the podcast. Great to have your insights on the impact of new technologies. I hope you OIS podcast listeners enjoyed that. Uh, if you did, and I'm, I'm hoping you did, please uh, give us a ranking on iTunes. It does help other people find the podcast. Please do tell your friends if they are also fans of innovation in ophthalmology. And, of course, uh, feel free to shoot me an email. My email is tom at healthogy.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthogy produces both the OIS events and the OIS podcast. Don't forget to go to ois.net. Check out the agenda for OIS and ASRS. It's happening on August 10th in Boston, my hometown. And uh, we would love to have you there. So go to ois.net, sign up, and we will see you in Boston. <laughs>